In chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel, he records three parables of Jesus with a common theme. Something valuable is lost and then recovered. The first story is of a sheep. The second is of a coin. And this is the third parable Jesus tells. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will not set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. There's a TV commercial that opens um, with a view of the face of an airline passenger who is seated... um, in in his seat and from behind he's being repeatedly kicked by a small child so seated he turns and glares at the child and the child glares right back so he gets up and he makes his way forward toward the front of the plane and there he peers into first class and what he sees looks to be something that doesn't belong to the plane that he's a part of There's luxurious space with relaxed passengers lounging in swivel chairs. And they're personally pampered by individualized uh, flight attendants. And one of those attendants sees this man and can see the look on his face, the anxious look on his face, the pleading eyes, and she smiles and moves toward him. And for the first time, you see his face change. He bears signs of hope and relief. Someone understands they're coming to my rescue. 
And about the time she gets to him, she reaches up and closes the curtain. The man, as the man turns away, we hear the narrator say, first class is there to remind you that you are not in first class. And then there's a, somebody who made the commercial comes on. We experience a lifetime of being reminded that um, being told both in words and in actions that we don't belong. Whether it's due to our race, to our nationality, to our gender, sexual orientation, our wealth or lack of it, our social standing, we get the message loud and clear. We're either, we don't have enough, we don't measure up, we don't belong. And something inside us does not want to be so confined and relegated to such a specified place or position. We react to that. It feels like an infringement on our sense of freedom and self-determination. We want the ability to be who we are, to go where we want, when we want. And yet at the same time, if we're truly honest, we expend a lot of energy, money, and life trying to be something we're not or mask the person we, we wish we weren't. And in the process, we can find ourselves disoriented if not lost, not entirely sure where it is we belong. Social scientist and best-selling author Brene Brown has a new book being released this fall. I called to order it, and the woman at the other end of the phone at Coppersfield said, really, it's out? You know, and, and then she said, oh, it's not due out until September or October. So I, I had her all excited and then crashed. In this book, Brene Brown addresses this question of knowing where it is we belong, particularly in an age that, that um, is filled with increased polarization. In one of the publisher promos, we get to read a little bit about what she says. She writes, we're experiencing a spiritual crisis of disconnection. True belonging requires us to believe in and belong to ourselves so fully that we can find sacredness both in being a part of something and in standing alone when necessary. But in a culture that's rife with perfectionism and pleasing and with the erosion of civility, um, it's easy to stay quiet, to hide in our ideological bunkers or to fit in rather than to show up as our true selves and brave the wilderness of uncertainty and criticism. True belonging, she says, is not something we negotiate or accomplish with others. Rather, it's a daily practice that demands integrity and authenticity. It's a personal commitment that we carry in our hearts. I think if you change that last line to say it's a personal conviction that we carry in our hearts, then you get the essence of the story that Jesus told in this parable. This young man 
is bored with his life and he wants adventure. He dreamed of breaking free of the customs and traditions that tied him to his family's home. So one day he says to his father, I wish you were dead because that's what it would take to inherit the estate. To say, I wish you were dead so that I could have my portion of the estate and I could live the way I want to. And to his surprise, his father says, okay, you want it, you got it. And with the means to leave home, he's gone. He goes to another part of the world, another country where he squanders his money on thrills and pleasures until there's nothing left. And then when a famine strikes that part of the world, he has to hire himself out to feed pigs. He becomes so hungry and destitute that he envied the stuff in the bucket that was being poured into the pig's trough. You have to be pretty desperate to think that looks good. It was then that the text simply says he came to his senses. I think that's there for parents because we think if we just say it another time, if we just look more sincerely and emphatic, then our child will finally hear it, that we have wisdom and understanding and that we want what's best for them. And if they only listen to us, they can correct what's wrong. But instead, the text says, he came to his senses. It doesn't say he remembered what his father said to him long ago or didn't stop saying to him. Um, what a grace-filled moment. He, in essence, says, my father's servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. What's wrong with this picture? This is not where I belong. And then he rehearses his speech. He'll say to his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I don't consider myself worthy to be called your son. I've severed that relationship. But if you have compassion for me, then perhaps you'll hire me on. And I can be one of your servants and I'll live better than I'm living now. And he got up and went. Not being where we belong is not so much a place as it is a displacement or a disconnect of relationships that define who we are and that orient us and anchor us to vital, important people in our life that, that help us understand who we are. That's how we function best. They bring out who we truly are. They honor us, accept us, value us. In order for the son in the story to reverse his misfortune, he had to come to terms with that relationship with his father and that it had broken and he was the one who caused it. Notice it doesn't say he returned to his native country or he looked to go home. It doesn't say that at all. It said he returned to his father. He had to rehearse what he would say before he could get up and go. And even if he doesn't consider himself 
in relationship as a son, he knows that he can be in relationship in the household in another way. For some of us who find ourselves not where we belong or even what we might say lost or on the wrong side of things, we can't just get up and correct it on our own. We need help. And in some cases, we need to be rescued. That was true of Edmund in the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Edmund's one of four siblings who ventures into the magical world of Narnia for a wardrobe. Now, how many of you, having read that story before, have actually pushed the back end of a wardrobe? Just hoping, maybe. Once he's in Narnia, he doesn't know his way around, and he doesn't know who to trust, and that includes his brother and his sister. You see, that's one of the things that happens when we get away from where we belong. The people who are important to us, that help us ha uh, keep our bearings, we lose track of them. We become isolated from them. Edmund's hard to like in this story. From the very beginning, we're told he could be spiteful, he could be nasty. Remember it said, that one line says, he got nastier and nastier. You know people like that? Um, he was jealous and he was secretive. After Lucy discovers him in Narnia, she's all excited because now he will substantiate what she has said is true and no one's believed her. And that in itself bothers him. To have to admit that she was right, when you know he doesn't, uh, that makes you love him all the more, right? <laughs> and then he also thinks that everybody's going to be on the side of the fawns and the other animals. No one's going to be on my side. And what was that? Lewis tells us, he was already more than half on the side of the wolf. See how subtle it happens? Already more than half where he didn't belong. And as readers of the story, we know that Edmund is being used by the witch to lure his brothers and sisters. He wants to prevent the prophecy from being fulfilled where the sons of daughter and and sons of daughters, wow, <laughs> where the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve will one day, four of them, sit on the throne of where? Pere Paravel, yes. And so um, she thinks, okay, if she can't get the other siblings, then maybe she could eliminate Edmund, and that will prevent the prophecy from happening. But instead, he's rescued by Aslan's army, and he's returned to his siblings. And in this clip, we get to see what that's like.
What's done is done. There is no need to speak to Edmund about what has passed. Perfect. Her sister's giving the hugs. Older brother says, "Give some." And Edmund. Try not to wander off. Try not to wander off. He says. You think that that resolves it, right? And they know it doesn't. There's much more to pay for his wandering off. It's going to cost something. Just as it costs him something, it's going to cost Aslan something. So if you haven't read the story, then you can at least see it tonight when we gather at 5 o'clock for the conclusion of our One Church, One Book read this summer when you see the movie. I love the fact that Aslan says there's no need to talk of what's past. Um, That day may come and it may not. But the important thing is that he was reunited and restored to his family. And I love the fact that once he's later, he is called Edmund the Just. Isn't that interesting? The one who needed the wrong to be righted is the one who will now be the protector of what of maintaining the rights and privileges of others. Um, we don't like to identify with Edmund, but each and every one of us did. Hate to tell you that. Um, especially if you think you're still Lucy. This past June, Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech in Chicago, and he suggested that Facebook may fill the gap in people's lives that churches once provided. A number of people have stopped coming to church, have left the church, and he thinks the place for them to land is the new church known as Facebook. He says a lot of people now need to find a sense of purpose and support somewhere else. Now, as a non-Facebook user, I'm not in a position to offer a credible response. But I found someone who did. And I appreciate the comparison and critique offered by journalist Peter Omerod of The Guardian. He says church and Facebook represent diametrically opposite cultures. And then he explains why. Unlike Facebook, a church tells us that we're not the center of the world. And believe it or not, we need to be reminded of that every week. I somehow slip into that role where I think, you know, that seat that's supposed to be the command center. um, And I just think, God, I've got it from here. And, I, uh, and on Sundays, I'm reminded, I need to move away from that place and let God be there. God's the center of the universe, not me. And rather than encourage us to show off our best side at all times, says um, Omarad, a church compels us to examine ourselves in the round, the 360 
you to face up to those things about ourselves that we would like to pretend we're not. Facebook, meanwhile, presents us with an impoverished, narrow version of ourselves, the version we think most of our friends like or think we are, and we're all the better for their likes and their shares. Of course, churches can be guilty of being superficial and focused on appearances as well. They show off the worst of us and the best of us because they're made up of people. Hamarad continues, yet churches bring us into contact with people we would never think of as friends. There are cliques, of course. There are those people that prefer the 1030 worship hours and as opposed to attending at 8 or 9 or... No, that's not what he means by cliques. Um, but we all come to the same table and drink of the same cup, sing the same songs and pray the same prayers. It's a breaking down of barriers and awareness of mutual responsibility and dependence. It's a celebration of our mutual brokenness. It's an unsanitized experience of humanity, and we're all the healthier because of it. A good church is more than just a social network. It's a place of transcendence, faith, silence, peace, devotion, richness, and depth. No matter how grand Zuckerberg's visions may be, they will never compete with that. Now, I don't say that just to say, yay, we another one for the church versus Facebook. That's not what I read that quote for, but instead to say that the church can be a place where we belong. Because as followers of Christ, we know we belong to God through Christ. And if we belong to God, then we might dare to realize what it means to belong to one another and be the true self that we are, warts and all. To say, this is where I belong. These are the people to whom I belong. Because I follow a Savior who reminds me I'm loved and accepted. And I can, and I can be that for someone else. So be it. One of the beauties of belonging to one another is that we recognize that we don't carry our burdens on our own. That when we face things in our life that are difficult, when we need prayer, when we need someone to walk alongside us, that we are part of a body that does that together. This morning we're going to take some time to reflect in prayer to think about who it is that we belong to. But you'll also find on your bulletins these empty post-it notes. And you might have thought, that's weird. Why did someone forget to take a post-it note off of my bulletin? But it's for a purpose. We're going to encourage you doing the, during this song to write down your own prayer on this note. You can include your name or not. It's up to you. But after the song, we will move out and put them on the walls of the church. And then we will take someone else's and we will take it home and we will pray for someone else. And we'll be reminded that we are a body that lifts one another up together. If you need a sticky note, I have more. If you didn't pick up a bulletin, so please just raise your hand and I'll find one. 